our memories of 2008 are still fairly fresh. And I wonder how this compares for you, this twin crisis of COVID combined with Brexit to what we were going through in the UK then, but also in, in Europe then. Uh, yes, very interesting, really, because I was uh, working for the government 2008, 2009. So uh, I worked there until 2010. Um, and of course, you know, we weren't exactly expecting it, or at least there had been uh, a few uh, people who had been worried about uh, the the sort of uh, overgearing that seemed to be taking place uh, all across the world by the banking sector. But uh, there hadn't been any real warning of what type of crisis we were going to get if we did, uh, because, of course, we're quite used to getting crisis every 10 years or so. Um, but this was the extent of it and the interconnectivity that people hadn't quite realised. In other words, the world had globalised very significantly in the last few decades, and the various financial systems were very interlinked, with capital controls having gone in many places, money was flowing around very easily, um, and uh, there had been certainly relaxation of rules, particularly in the US. So when it hit, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, we weren't quite prepared for what was needed to be done to uh, deal with it. So there was quite a lot of sort of emergency um, action that was taken. And the interesting thing is that we didn't know, and I don't think anyone knew in any other part of the world really, uh, how much you needed to do to sort out the problem. Uh, and there had been some concerns at the beginning in terms of um, moral hazards. Um, if we save one bank, is everyone else going to be expecting to be saved as well? Well, actually, that was probably the wrong approach to take. One had to just do whatever one could, and in the end, one did. So you could argue that there are similarities, of course, now too. Uh, the real difference is that the world is now quite used to uh, perhaps lending quite a lot of money to uh, countries with high debt to GDP ratios. Of course, it worried quite considerably for a few years after the financial crisis, but interest rates have come down so significantly uh, over the last few years because inflation has basically sort of disappeared uh, as any serious concern. Uh, and uh, the markets are happy to look at the debt that's being created and are prepared to finance it and finance it at quite low rates. Uh, looking back, you know, being originally Greek myself um, and having written quite a lot about the European uh, crisis, uh, what happened in the Eurozone and how countries like Greece, Italy and so on have had uh, serious problems with their debt situation and at times it looked like they couldn't carry on borrowing in the capital markets, uh, the mood has changed very significantly. Now they can at very, very high debt to GDP ratios. And that is, of course, because the European Central Bank has stepped in and is buying back all those bonds uh, if need be. That's basically what has happened. You sound quite sanguine about our prospects for the UK. If it Perhaps if it weren't for Brexit, if it were, if it were COVID alone, you think that they've taken the measures that need to be taken and that clearly it's an awful lot of money, but over the long run, it's copable with. Well, yes, I do think that, but it doesn't mean that that money has necessarily been spent in the best way. There have been very few analyses of the cost benefit of the money that's been 
uh, you know, dished out, and but also the various measures that have been taken. So uh, that, in my view, is inevitable because the crisis has been hitting us from all sorts of different directions, and you know, difficult also to find the time to do some of these things. And and in a way, it's justified sort of going ahead and trying. And some of the things will be done wrongly, some of the things won't work. But uh, let's let's hope for the best. But just even putting extra liquidity in, if necessary. Uh, so yes, the overall amount that has been spent is probably um, correct because it needed to be done. Uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, you know chopping and changing, which hasn't given quite the right signals to businesses and consumers, uh, both of whom have suffered. So uh, that could have been better done. But again, thinking back on how it was, uh, that is inevitable in my view. The, the markets have to get used to the fact that that borrowing will increase and increase and increase. And even if you're looking at the projections for 2024, 2025, we're still in that year probably going to be needing to borrow about 100 billion pounds, which sounds quite a lot. But obviously in today's um, figures, which would be 400 billion for this year, it's nothing. But if we're thinking about COVID, then... There seems to be a sense that with a potential vaccine coming down the line, you know, in the world of known knowns and known unknowns, we're kind of getting a grip on it. But when it comes to Brexit, we've got 36 days left. We've got no deal. Um, The FT today is talking about this being a time of peak uncertainty. So how do you think that that compares as far as our economic prospects are concerned? And what I'm wondering about is, you know, if the EU really seems to be making sure that there is going to be a cost for us for Brexit, that it it couldn't possibly be any other way that we could somehow come away from it unscathed and carry on with business as usual. I wouldn't really look at it this way. Um, I think the EU uh, probably wants a deal because, of course, it's pretty good for their own companies to have trade which is not uh, encumbered in any way by tariffs and also to make it easy because it costs both ways if you're bringing things in and taking them out and you have to worry about um, filling in forms and rules of origin and all that sort of stuff that um, business are going to have to do on the on the goods front Um, at the same time of course there is a big big issue on services which hasn't been necessarily factored in there are very substantial non-tariff barriers if you are a third country and for the UK, certainly, what they will want is to have that eliminated as much as possible. It doesn't look like we have made a huge amount of progress in that area, even though there has been a little bit of give-in, if you like, from this side, where we have said that we will extend whatever it is that firms are doing now quite easily for a few um, years ahead so that they can uh, financial services can actually operate properly from here without too much extra administrative burden. What I think has been ignored by uh, the current government so far, but I think they'll begin to realise it soon because everyone is now saying it more loudly, including the OBR, is that there is going to be a cost of no deal to the economy in the short term as well. So we're talking about possibly 2% of GDP. We will be hoping to recover uh, and have growth, you know, possibly of about... You know, if we're lucky, about five percent next year. Every one to two percent we don't get, and that is on the assumption of an orderly free trade agreement. I mean, Brexit will be here, and we'll be lopping off revenue from what you'd expect otherwise for years to come. 
don't don't you find it bizarre that they seem to be more concerned in the negotiations and this applies to both sides with with fish which is a th- a thousandth of the UK workforce than they do about financial services which one's hardly heard mentioned at all you, you know it seems to me it's only over the last couple of weeks that we're starting to get kind of grumblings there or are, are they so sort of flexible and opportunistic in the city that they'll be able to kind of make it work and they'll work out ways round? Individual companies in the city, particularly the large ones, will be able to survive quite okay. And a number of them have already set up operations in uh, other EU centres, Eurozone centres, and have been transferring some people abroad or have been hiring more people in other places and, and manning operations there. So it has cost them. In some cases, billions, really. And also some of the investment funds have been moving money out of the UK. So there's been a lot of that going on. So the investment banks have been quite active in um, establishing themselves as well elsewhere and making sure that they can continue to operate properly because obviously the passporting system disappears. In other words, you can't uh, just have mutual recognition and just set up here and sell your services everywhere. Um, so, so the individual big firms will, will do well. I mean, the real question, though, is what happens to the economy, given that exporting of services is the one area where we have a balance of payments surplus. And, of course, the financial sector is quite considerable in its contribution to this, plus, of course, the contribution to the exchequer. What uh, the City of London has calculated is that uh, the financial service sector, the wider sector, including, of course, insurance, contribute something like 70 odd billion a year to to the treasury in terms of tax receipts now if you lose a little bit of that then again since we started talking about uh how much more we need to borrow then obviously it's not very helpful if you lose um a few tens of billions of that um given that the chancellor has just announced their pay freeze for quite a few million people in the public sector with a number of exceptions of course as we know for the lower paid and national health service and it's going to be saving possibly one to two billion pounds when losing quite a lot of uh, financial services taxes is a problem. So uh, you do indeed wonder why fisheries is so important. It's a very, very peculiar situation we're finding ourselves in. You say peculiar. Doesn't it feel beyond peculiar to you? If you try and stand back from it now and observe it and try and understand it, what... How do you feel about it, sort of, you know, within your heart? I think we're making a big mistake from an economic viewpoint. But, of course, there's no accounting for politics and for whatever it is that people uh, were told we were leaving the EU for. Uh, But having worked in government and all those issues about state aid, uh, I mean, yes, of course, we would always check whether subsidising or helping a company um, or a sector uh, was uh, perhaps one uh, issue that, the EU wasn't going to approve of. Uh, But in reality, going to state aid rules saying we can't actually support a particular firm um, was an interesting excuse to use, if you like. I'm not suggesting that it was used all the time, but if you look at what is allowed under the regime, a lot more is allowed than what we did here in the UK overall over the whole period of being in the EU. And if you look at the percentage of money that is being spent as, uh, as percent of GDP in other countries in Europe, they spend more than, than we do. And I think that's a fact. Do you think it would have been a possibility for us 
you know, in those post-Heath years to be less semi-detached than we seem to have been almost from the start. I mean, we, you know, we were always perceived as the awkward neighbour. We didn't sort of, you know, muck in. I mean, did we have the opportunity and at what point was that opportunity to, to sort of become more integrated and more into the mainstream and, you know, perhaps to move Europe in the, in the direction that would have been, you know, congenial for the populace here? Well, the truth is that we have been quite instrumental in how the EU has has uh, moved. I mean, after all, we were the ones who were terribly enthusiastic in terms of allowing uh, the countries in Eastern Europe to become members of the EU. So, and we also set up quite a lot of their standards. UK standards have become European standards. We were way ahead of the game. Uh, so uh, the idea that we weren't integrated is not correct. Of course, we had a number of areas where we had an opt-out uh, and we relished that opt-out. And yes, of course, there were all these fights about, you know, getting a rebate from the EU and so on. But in reality, it was not that significant in terms of separating us from, from the EU. And we had a bit of a semi-detached approach, I suppose, uh, in that we took the best and then a few things that we didn't want to change, we didn't change. And a lot of what we do internally is decided entirely by us. It has nothing to do with the EU. And I think this belief that we weren't you know, in charge of our own policies is, is hugely exaggerated. But I think the point where we could have become more uh, integrated was, of course, with the creation of the euro. And there we didn't do it. Gordon Brown wasn't in favour of that. I think Tony Blair was. I personally think it was a good idea not to join. I was always against the euro because it didn't actually have uh, the, the sort of um, institutional framework that could deal with crisis. And it's exactly what happened when the financial crisis hit. If you had to choose between feeling more confident about the future of the EU or that of the UK having left, which would you put your money on? Well, the EU will lose out if we leave without a deal. There's no doubt about that. A number of countries that depend quite substantially in, in selling goods to us. But really, the losers are going to be you know, companies in the UK um, and, of course, the, the general population, because basically we'll be growing a lot more slowly than would otherwise have been the case. I mean, Europe, of course, again, will suffer, but Overall, nothing like as much as the UK. After all, we do sell 45% of our goods and services to, to Europe, whereas they sell only something like you know, anywhere between 7 and 10%, depending, percent, depending on how you calculate it. It does seem a funny situation for us to be in at the moment where we had the Chancellor last week kind of joking that he should take his Prime Minister's credit card away. And it's interesting that the Chancellor doesn't seem to sort of take the bait when asked to say anything about Brexit at all. That sort of uncertainty is going to go forward. I mean, do you do you think that, that the the political atmosphere as far as Europe will will change? I mean, there's clearly a degree of ill will at the moment, but do you think that will be surmounted and that we can sort of reach a new reasonable relationship with our neighbours in Europe? Well, if I were to put my uh, sort of logical hat on and think that people behave rationally generally, which is of course something that, you know, these days in economics you're being warned against because 
you know, can we really believe in rational behaviour, rational expectations? I, I still believe in it. What the Chancellor needs for the future and what the government needs for the future in order to perhaps be re-elected if that's what they want to do, and also ensure that uh, actually it's linked to it, they can continue to borrow the amounts that they need to borrow. They need growth. And on current trends, they may get a bit of bounce back, but we're not going to get back to where we were even before the crisis, before the end of 2022. That's the central forecast of the OBR that came out just now recently. If they want growth, then they want a reasonable relationship with Europe as well. But don't you think among those individuals who are very passionately pro-Brexit, I would imagine that they're possibly even a minority among those who voted for it. There's a hope, certainly an expectation, that our leaving will be the first sort of brick in the wall to fall out of the whole European project. Surely Europe itself has got to adapt. I mean, do you think it will be able to? And how do you see it in 10 years' time? Uh, if you look at the way in which Europe has come together, more or less, in terms of the support that it will give to businesses and countries during COVID, the complete rethink of mutualization of debt. So now you have the first, if you like, European euro bonds, which um, are in great demand by investors. Uh, you have the, the agreement to distribute grants to countries, not as much as was originally intended, but still quite a lot of money will go without it needing to be repaid. You have the European Central Bank buying even you know junk bonds of southern European countries uh, without worrying too much about it. I mean, the credit risk rating of Greece has gone up as a result by the markets. So that has shown quite a willingness to think Europe-wide rather than the way they did after the financial crisis, which left quite a lot of countries in serious trouble in terms of their debt. So, and if you ask the population, if anything, the, the view of Europe has increased very significantly in terms of it being much more positive now than was the case before. There are constant surveys done. And as far as I can see, satisfaction with Europe has reached, I think, almost record levels wow. and with the yeah. euro, mm -hmm. not in all countries, but if you look at uh, Europe overall, uh, and also if you look even at countries that would surprise you a little bit, um, where the, the figures have been actually quite, quite strong. So I would not forecast the end of Europe as we know it in 10 years' time. In fact, if anything, because of the attempts now to... Uh, bring various countries and also various markets in those countries closer together and with proper infrastructure around you to deal with crisis, I think we are moving closer uh, to a sort of unified Europe. I'm not going to say united, but a happier unified Europe than perhaps we were in the past 10 years.